Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. about pain not just as the physical sensation of pain but also kind of adversity and hardship in your life we're all going to face some kind of form of adversity at some point in our lives all of us are going to go through something that really really tests us whether it's kind of illness or our own bereavement or, or some other kind of disaster we're all going to go through it and if we spend our lives up to that point trying to protect ourselves from all harm and and reduce our stress and, and, and keep ourselves safe the whole time. We're not going to have the mental resources to deal with, with real adversity when it, when it arises. So, you know, the, the tendency that we tend to have to try and make our lives as nice and as soft as possible, I don't think in the long term actually does as much good. Um, I think we're much better off, and I think this is some of the lessons that we, that we learn from people who go into extremes, is that... These kind of um, adverse and stressful experiences actually build our mental toughness and they build our ability to cope with um, difficult situations when they come. The aim of the wise is not to secure pleasure, but to avoid pain. The pragmatic words of ancient Greek philosopher and scientist Aristotle. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What drives people to extreme environments? Is there a relationship between pain, human endurance and personality? And what can we learn from it all? Yes, tonight on Talking Books, we're going to unpack the psychology of belief and the passion of perseverance with two thought-provoking writers, one a psychologist, the other a classicist, writers of tremendous insight, curiosity and imagination. Emma Barrett talks her latest book, Extreme, Why Some People Thrive at the Limits, and Tim Whitmarch explores how atheists were written out of history. This is a show about God and grit, risk and adventure, and the modernist vanity of the new atheists. Hello, my name is Tim Whitmarsh. I'm Professor of Greek Culture at the University of Cambridge. I have written a recent book called Battling the Gods, Atheism in the Ancient World. I've written a number of books before that, but this is my first book on religious history. What a curious read, Battling the Gods, is, Tim. It's an extraordinary story of a wonderfully awful misunderstanding on the history of atheism. I might start off with a big wide open question for you if you wouldn't mind and throw you a bit of Socrates. He features quite extensively along with Plato and other great uh, philosophers in your book. Socrates once said wisdom begins in wonder. Do you agree with that? Well it does, doesn't it? I mean that's the the thing that motivates anyone who's involved in any kind of academic or broadly exploratory enterprise. I mean you begin with a question, you begin with something not just a question, but something that really makes you stand up, something that drives that quest inside you to understand things. So yeah, I mean wonder is not wisdom itself, but wonder is certainly the spur to wisdom. Now, you write in your introductions, the deep history of atheism is a human rights issue. It is about recognising atheists as real people, deserving of respect, tolerance and opportunity to live their lives unmolested. So within all of that, why does the history of atheism matter and why have we overlooked it? Or certainly, why have we somewhat misrepresented it all? Well, I think it's served two different communities very well to pretend that atheism is a product of the modern era. I'm not one of these people who thinks that atheism is a sort of universal category in the same sense that it stays the same over time. I mean, clearly it does have history and it's different in different cultures and so forth. But I think people like to think that it's something that arose with modern 
secular European Enlightenment because, as I say, the two constituencies, one are very religious who want to see the modern world as terrible and going down the tubes and so forth and saying that the rest of the world has always been religious and if only we could get rid of this, you know, terrible kind of modernist blip of atheism um, and get back to proper religion, then everything would be fine. And then there's the other constituency, which is the sort of the hyper-atheists in the, the Dawkins camp who want to present science as eclipsing religion atheism is something that could only really come about when we've got our science up to a level where we can actually begin to answer serious questions about the nature of the universe and don't have to rely on religious texts. So between those two groups of people, I think we've satisfied ourselves with this myth that atheism is a new thing. But I, as you said, um, my view is really that actually it matters to recognize that there have always been people who've asked deep searching questions about the evidence for religion and about the constructed nature of religion. And those questions have been essential to the Greek intellectual tradition. Yeah, that's right. Well, going back to the question of wonder being the origin of of wisdom, really, uh, the Greeks, their equivalent of a sacred text, it wasn't a sacred text because it wasn't sacred, but their central texts were the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer. And Greek philosophy started kicking off when people started not accepting the representations of the gods that we found in those texts. So their gods in Homer are very human in their form. They are capable of falling asleep and being distracted and arguing with each other and disagreeing and so forth. So they they are very human. And Greek philosophy began both by trying to get a, a more accurate sense of what a god might be like, but also by no longer accepting the Homeric explanation for how things happened in terms of the agency of these human gods. And that's that second strand that is, is really at the heart of the book. Now, you're right. Disbelief in the supernatural is as old as the hills. The notion a human being is an essentially religious being, however, is no more cogent than the notion that apples are essentially red. I laughed my head off now to him when I read that. And it brings up so many different questions. You go on further to say it is the blind spot that has sustained the illusion that disbelief outside of a post-enlightenment West is unthinkable. How do you think we've got it so wrong, though? Is it that the victors write history or has it just doesn't sit well within our, I suppose, predominant Christian narratives that people can think differently? I think both of those are right. I think most of our evidence for how other cultures operate comes in a very sort of simple form, whether we're talking about you know our understanding of how other cultures operate in the world around us today or historically. It's actually quite difficult to find disbelievers in, I mean, in my field, in the Greek world, I mean, it took, <laughs> it took me a long time to piece together this story because the basic people that are trying to shout to be heard throughout history are the people, the dominant people in society, and they do tend to give you politically, religiously, and culturally mainstream pictures of the world around them. And, and those do, as a result, tend to be very religiously orthodox, as, you know, perhaps not the right word to use, but, you know, sort of religiously normative, if you like, views of the world. So, yeah, I think that's one part of it. And the other part of it is, as you say, the sort of predominantly Christian way of understanding things, which says that belief, because belief is a very interesting category. Very few religions talk about belief. It's only really kind of Christianity and to extent Islam that put belief really at the heart of things. Uh, so, you know, if we're locked into that way of thinking that, you know, people are believers and they really do sort of believe or whatever, then it's very easy to assume that 
belief in the gods is something that is universal and has to exist. Now, you argue that disbelief or atheism predates Jesus. I'm just wondering, how difficult was it to locate atheists in ancient cultures? You say something on the lines of that it's not simply a question of density of evidence. So how did you go about it all? Because the information that we have is pretty patchy. So what exact evidence or facts were you basing it all on? Yeah, well, one thing I would say is that I started off saying that atheism is not the same in every single culture. And of course, the word atheist is a Greek word. It's a Greek-derived word. The Greek word theos means God, and the a beforehand means lacking in a God. And from the 5th century BCE onwards, there are people that the Greeks identified as atheoi, as people who lacked a belief in the gods. And one of these was Socrates, I mean, the most famous Greek philosopher of all. He was actually executed on a charge of not believing in the gods of the city. So, in a way, a lot of this material is in your face. But, I mean, the difficulty, of course, is trying to work out whether that is an atheist, someone like Socrates is an atheist in our terms. And Socrates is actually a very complex case. There are plenty of people who are attested in antiquity who argue for the non-existence of gods. There are plenty of, of philosophically based arguments. So, I mean, the famous argument from evil, if we have evil in the world, how can that coexist with the idea of an omnipotent, benevolent deity? Because if the God is omnipotent and the benevolent, you know, they wouldn't allow evil. That's an argument that goes right the way back to the 5th century BC. That sort of material, that was the real labor of the book, was really sort of putting together those very diverse, fragmentary little bits of evidence and trying to tell some sort of story about it and trying to show how, again, it shifts over time and that it's different in the world of the classical city-state and then in the world created by Alexander the Great's conquests and then the world of Rome and so forth. And then it changes again under the Christian Empire. So it's a sort of thousand-year history trying to hold this sort of story together. How radical was the likes of Hippo? You you say somewhere that he was the first atheist. He impacted the likes of Protagoras and other great thinkers. I'm just wondering how much of a radical was he and how differently did he think to everyone else? Yeah, so Hippo of Samos, Samos, this island that's been in the news so, lot, so much recently for the refugee crisis, is the first person who we can point to who was almost certainly an atheist in the way that we understand it now. That's someone who doesn't believe in, in God's is also the first person probably to have been called Atheos in the in the Greek world as well, so it's a nice coincidence there. How radical was he? Well, the problem with Hippo is that we don't have him in, in his own words. We only have reports in Aristotle. But what Aristotle seems to say is two things. One is that he's a thoroughgoing materialist. He doesn't believe in any kind of spirit or any kind of supernatural. And the other is that he believes that the brain is the source of human consciousness, which is one of these things that are so self-evident to us. But uh, if you read Homer, Homer thinks Homer has multiple different organs of the body that he thinks are responsible for thinking and thought and, and so forth, the, the heart and the spleen and so forth, the liver. So actually saying thought comes from the brain and that's the origin of your identity, it's almost like Descartes, uh, I think therefore I am. This is the origin of yourself. It's not out of the body. It's not something that exists as sort of all the bodily organs working in tandem. It is actually the brain, the physical material brain that creates the thoughts and that is nothing more. So I think he was probably a pretty radical guy. Do you think, but as I say, with a caveat that you know we don't have him in his own words. Do you think in some way we can relay Homer's Odyssey or Eliot to questions on disbelief? Is there a synergy there? Obviously, you know, these great myths, there's truths to them in terms of how they're recognising what it is to be human, what is happening in the mm. world and what is my position in the world. But whether that relates to disbelief or not, how big a leap is that? How big a jump is that? 
Yeah, that's a very interesting question. The book is called Battling the Gods because one of the central stories that I play with in that is this idea of humans wanting to take on the divine order in battle. And in time, by the 5th century BC, or with the height of classical Athens, those sort of people, the people who want to take on the gods, are beginning to be associated with atheist arguments. So that's, you know, where that comes in. But earlier than that, in the world of Homer and Hesiod, you do seem to get this sense that certain people can at certain times shrug off their sense of inferiority towards the gods and can actually do battle with the gods. In Homer, there's very little that looks actually like anything like atheism. We have, for example, the Cyclops in the famous... But uh, there are big moral questions on what are we doing and is this right or wrong and what are the consequences and why am I doing it in the first Mm. place and who's ruling me or not? Well, certainly in Homer's Odyssey, the Odyssey starts with Zeus saying the suitors who are eating dishes out of houses and home and trying to seduce his wife, Penelope, these are people who are doing something terribly wrong and they must be punished. The Odyssey is the working out of that sense of divine justice. And as you say, exactly the consequences of your actions. Odysseus of crewmen do something terrible. They eat the cattle of the sun god Helios. And as a result, they get punished by Helios. So the Odyssey certainly describes a world in which divine punishment for human transgression is one of the things that you can expect. The Iliad is very different in that respect, though. Uh, the Iliad has a much more kind of chaotic world. It's a battle narrative, and even people that attack gods in battle don't seem necessarily to get punished. Tim, can I ask you a personal question? What's your take on relativism? Because as a professor of Greek culture, I imagine that with your students, you're wrestling with stories and myths on universal truths Mm -hmm. and whether we can say there are universal truths or not. So by compiling this book, Battling the Gods, certainly it must have challenged your take on it all. Yeah. Okay. well, if I'm allowed a sort of a split answer to that question, what I would say is that as a historian, as somebody who is a professional scholar, When I go to a new culture, and typically for me that's the Greeks and the Romans, but I'm interested in other cultures as well, when I go to these cultures, I have to assume a relativist position in the sense that I have to try my hardest not to automatically assume that my values are the values of that other culture. So professionally, I would say I am a relativist. Personally and morally, I don't think that one can be relativist. I think that one one has to, I mean, whilst acknowledging that difference is the variety of the world, I don't think you can go through life thinking, well, you know, our culture thinks that something like genital mutilation is bad. But, you know, if other people want to do it, that's okay by them. I think if you think something is bad, then, you know, up to a point, you have to think it's bad cross-culturally. Can we talk about tragedy? It's, it was one of the areas in the book that I particularly enjoyed. And you were looking at Athenian drama and you were questioning whether how religious it was or not. And that, you know, a lot of the plays have a very strong moral line. Mm. And there is, again, consequences to actions and how we understand those consequences. Is there an argument to say that when we look at Athenian drama, that we can say somewhere in Athenian drama, we can pitch up these atheist stories or narratives? I think you can, yes. I think one has to remember that Athenian drama is the big media of their day. I mean, of course, they don't have television, they don't have internet or anything like that, but the way in which they get their ideas, the way in which they circulate what's going on at the elite intellectual levels in society amongst a huge swathe of people, probably not women, 
probably not slaves, but you know, up to 30,000 Athenian citizens, so large numbers of people, really is mass entertainment. This is through the dramatic performance of these ideas. Now, Athenian drama is a religious festival. It's nothing like modern theatre where you pay your money and you go in and you, um, you, know, you sit down in your jeans or your tuxedo or whatever. It is, as I say, it's a religious occasion, a festival dedicated to the god Dionysus, and there were sacrifices beforehand, so it's marked by religion. And many of these plays do have strongly religious themes in them. But within the arc of the plot, the plot is usually there's a problem at the beginning, it's resolved at the end, and that's often it's often resolved by gods. But during the course of that journey, people often do explore atheistic ideas. So that argument from evil that I mentioned earlier, actually it's, one, it's a figure called Bellerophon who rides the winged horse Pegasus and he seems to have ridden up to Mount Olympus and attempted to enter Olympus himself, which is a really shocking, scandalizing act. But he comes up with this argument against the existence of gods. He says there are no gods and the reason you can demonstrate this is the existence of injustice in the world. If there were gods in the world, then they would make sure that there is justice. So the arguments like that that really powerfully circulating the kind of high-octane intellectual discussion that's floating around at the time, circulating amongst a mass audience, even if Bellerophon ends up being punished in the end, even if um, he's proven wrong, if you like, by the, the outcome of the story, he's showing the Athenian audience how to make that kind of argument. Yeah, I think you you mentioned Oedipus the King, uh, Sophocles' Mm. Oedipus the King. But I'm just wondering, there are explorations. They're not necessarily positions. And there's a big distinction between that. Yeah, that's right. Yes, and I think that's... That's the dominant way of reading Greek tragedy these days uh, anyway, actually, is, is to see it as a highly interrogative force, if you like, it's a questioning medium. It's not something that gives people easy answers. I mean, it, it, the central moment of any Greek tragedy is this sort of hero in a state of absolute isolation faced by two irreconcilable choices, each each equally difficult. So it's not going to be a, a medium that presents itself or presents you as an audience with very easy moral choices, any more than Shakespeare's tragedies, for example, or anyone else's tragedies do. So, yeah, I mean, it is a, a sort of open-ended genre at every level, including at the divine level. Now, you picked up a very interesting um, question, Tim, in the book, Battling the Gods. What did Socrates really think about the gods? Did he believe firmly in the divine thing? Or was that simply a whim of this famously ironic philosopher? And then you premise it by saying, after all, he was a committed rationalist. It's an interesting one, isn't it? And Mm, he clearly liked to interrogate ideas. But what can we actually say? Or what can we actually establish? How have you wrestled with it? Well, uh, yeah, (laughs) wrestle is, is exactly the right word. Bethany Hughes described Socrates to me once as like a ring donut. That's to say, you know, the material around the outside is very tasty, but there's nothing in the centre. We don't have Socrates in his own words at all. All we have are the reports of the playwright Aristophanes, who represents him very much as an, as an atheist. Plato and Xenophon, who are writing after Socrates' execution, and they're really big supporters of Socrates, and they try very hard to present him in a, a strongly religious light and as, as the bearer of con- uh, religious ideas. So, you know, that that is a, a, a real poser. One would love to know, as you mentioned, uh, Socrates has this thing that he calls the divine thing, this voice that speaks to him alone, which is really exceptional for the Greek world, where typically in the Greek world, gods are collective civic deities. You go and worship them together in a group of people. The idea of having your own personal god who could speak to you looks pretty weird, but it seems to be Either you take it as, yes, this is Socrates' version of religion. He was saying, you know, I'm not like you others. I don't listen to 
state religion, but I have my own form of religion. Or you say you say it's actually a really kind of powerful metaphor for Socrates' rejection of religion. It's a way of saying, no, I've got my own God. I don't need your God. You know, um, I, I can just get by with my own God. But yes, it would be, <laughs> it'd be wonderful to have Socrates on the show as well and to, to have him uh, actually on. See what he question. says. I'm going to throw you a bit of Epicurus. Um, conventional religion is false, but should be followed. Based on that, is he an atheist? Well, a lot of people in antiquity thought he was an atheist. Modern Hebrew still uses the word apikoros to note an atheist. So in ancient terms, yes, he was an atheist. He believed that everything in the world is made out of matter and void. There's no afterlife. He did actually, weirdly, believe that there were gods. The gods don't exist in our world at all. They have no influence on us whatsoever. You can't communicate with them actively. Sometimes they can seep into your dreams because they're made out of these tiny little particles that they emit and they can sometimes find their way down into our world and enter our brain at night. But so yeah, he has a concept of the divine um, and why he needs this concept of the divine is not very clear because if your world is entirely made out of matter and Epicurus also thinks that everything must the bonds that hold together the atoms that make us up will eventually in time dissolve. So whether he thought these gods would dissolve as well and that they were impermanent, it's not very clear. Epicureanism is odd on the, the question of There the seems to be so, so many contradictions, though, with a lot of thinkers in the Hellenistic era. Yeah. Clearly that they were juggling a lot of interesting ideas mm, and looking mm, for new mm. approaches. But to actually get clarity or certainty on a specific issue seems very difficult. One of the things that I found very interesting is that while you're charting the history of atheism and, and it's showing us a very revealing story and how it's been underplayed or overlooked in some way, what seems all also quite extraordinary is how the expanse of Christianity following in the in the Roman Empire it, it just mushroomed at breakneck speed. I think you say somewhere that in uh, 200 AD, 0.35 percent of the Roman Empire was thought to be Christian, and that was roughly about 200,000 people. And then when we look at the next few centuries in the cult of Jesus, how it expanded and expanded to where yeah. we are today, like that is it is a, such a remarkable story. That must have challenged you as an historian of atheism that while you have these ideas and that clearly there are substantial facts to say that we have atheism predates Jesus, it predates Islam, it's cross-cultural, cross-continent. But within all of that, you had so many doubters or disbelievers that you also had suddenly people grasping onto Christianity. Does that challenge where you were coming from in any way? Because the facts are, are astonishing, really. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't say there were lots of atheists in the ancient world. I think it was I think atheism was a thing. I think it was a recognised thing. I think that people who were interested in philosophy were many more people interested in philosophy, of course, then than now. I mean, um, philosophy like Epicureanism lasted 600 years and was spread across the entirety of the Roman Empire. But yes, it's remained rather a niche thing. Christianity, the, the rise of Christianity is one of these things that historians still don't really know what accounted for it. And it seems to be that the third century was the big surge in Christianity. As you say, in about 200 CE, Christianity was absolutely tiny. It was no bigger than the cult of Isis or the cult of Mithras or in any of these other competitor religions. But something happened in the third century and it's maybe something to do with 
The third century is a very turbulent time with a lot of changeover at the top of the empire. Big fissures open up inside the Roman Empire and it almost falls apart towards the end. And perhaps Christianity, with its strong message of the afterlife, with its strong sense of a, a single, central, all-powerful, omnipotent God, perhaps in a world that's falling apart, perhaps that appealed to people. I think probably also there were sort of sporadic persecutions throughout the third century, and particularly in the middle of the third century. There's an emperor called Decius who produced a law, that I don't want to go into it in any great detail, but produced a law that had the side consequence of killing certain Christians. So I think things like that, the Christians got used to the idea that um, these stories of persecution and martyrdom and so forth were really powerful conversion tools, and I think that took off. They, you know, the Christian, if you like, the brand and the, the machine, the conversion machine, uh, started really getting into gear in the third century. So I think that there's a lot going on in the third century that propels that rise in numbers, but it's still only I mean, the, the estimates are only estimates, but by the end of the third century, it's still only 10%. It's, um, it's a lot. It's, it's grown very quickly, but it's still only 10%. And it takes actually the conversion of the Roman emperors to Christianity in the fourth century really to make Christianity the major religion of state. Now, Tim, you dedicate the book to the people of Greece in these difficult times. I was delighted to read that because they're such warm and friendly people and it's such a remarkable country to visit. Once you start visiting Greece, it's it's a lifelong relationship. You just have to keep on going back and back. When you think about it, whether it is the history of disbelief or whether we look at culture, art, and so many different things, we owe so much to the Greeks, don't we? We do, yes. And like you, I love visiting Greece. Uh, it was, I mean, it was really, it was because I'd been to Greece uh, a lot recently and, of course, seen the tragic effects of the economic crash followed by the, you know, the tragic effects of the refugee crisis. Um, the Greek people are amazing people. And Europe has owed, and hence the world has owed, an awful lot to the Greeks. I mean, I'm not one of these people who are a Greek exceptionalist. I think there were many other remarkable cultures in antiquity, many other remarkable cultures. Now, uh, it happened to be that the Christian West and the um, Muslim Caliphate in Baghdad as well preserved Greek ideas in a way that they didn't preserve, say, Egyptian ideas or Hebrew ideas outside of of the Hebrew Bible itself and so forth. So we actually have huge amounts of data from the Greco-Roman world that we don't have for other cultures. So, yeah, it's a kind of richer body of evidence. But But when we think about their contribution, the Greek contribution to the question alone and asking those questions and pitching up those ideas, whether it's in terms of philosophical uh, dialogue, in terms of Greek tragedy, wherever it is, it's always about the question and that ability to ask the question. And the, the Greeks seem to have done it with such finesse. Yep, and it comes back to your very first question about wonder. I think the Greeks were a, a people who always wondered. They always posed questions. It's something to do with the nature of political organisation in early Greece. When you get these um, local city-states where the adult male populace is as a whole bonded together, you don't have sort of an elite who are in charge of everyone else. You've actually got a kind of strong sense of kind of corporate decision-making. And that decision-making means that you get different points of view. They're different points of view, like any sort of market, you know, the marketplace of ideas depends on competition, if you like. So I think that's part of it. And also Greek culture didn't have a sort of strangling dominance of the intellectual world by a scribal elite, by a priest or anything like that. Writing, for example, was something that was always 
available to anyone who wanted to spend the time or had the leisure to spend the time to master it. Ideas circulated quite freely in a relatively oral culture. So, yeah, I think it was an exceptional civilization and, and remains an exceptional country now, as you say. was British classicist Tim Whitmarch. Battling the Gods, Atheism in the Ancient World is published by Faber and Faber and retails for about 13 euros on a Kindle or 18 euros in hardback. I have to say Tim's book is only outstanding. It's quite the eye-opening read. Talking Books on News 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, let's stick with the theme of courage and fear and meet with some terrific explorers and adventurers. What impact do sleep deprivation and solitude have on the body and mind? Are some people hardwired for risk and adventure? And is some stress good for us? Hi, my name's Emma Barrett. I'm a psychologist and I have a particular interest in the psychology of survival in extreme environments. And in 2014, um, I published a book along with a co-author, Paul Martin, called Extreme, Why Some People Thrive at the Limits. Emma, what does psychology have to say about toughness or what does a psychologist have to say about toughness? (laughs) So uh, we, we were interested in the experiences of people who survived in extremes because we thought they might tell us something about how Uh, we can all survive a little bit better in the tough situations we face in everyday life. And it turns out that some of those experiences tell us quite a lot about the value of things like sleep and resilience and focus, about how you can endure hardships and pain, and how you can get on better with other people who uh, can be quite a significant source of stress, both in extreme environments and in everyday life. Do you think resilience and toughness, do you think all of that um, that ability to survive and I suppose thrive in very hostile environments or extreme environments, do you think that is something that can be learned and mastered or is it something it's, that's innate and that you either have it or you don't? <laughs> that's a really interesting question. So one of the things that was quite surprising for us when we were looking at, uh, at some of the individuals who've gone through some quite extraordinary feats of endurance and survival in extreme environments. Most of them seem to be pretty ordinary people who who'd just found themselves doing extraordinary things. So they had put a, a lot of effort into cultivating resilience, if you like, and so cultivating their expertise and so that they're better able to survive. But they started out as pretty ordinary people. Now, in your introductions, you you argue that surviving and thriving in extreme environments, it's basically it comes down to a mind game. I imagine issues like fear and anxiety come up. So is it mastering those? Is that what you mean by it being a mind game? Yeah. So when you think about some of the extreme environments, so examples would be kind of polar exploration or being in space or climbing mountains or diving into the depths of the ocean. So people tend to think of all the physical hazards that that might involve. Um, and those those are pretty serious physical hazards, you know, there's kind of ever-present danger and risk of death and things like that. Um, but when you talk to people who've, who've done some of these things and you read some of their stories, you find that a lot of the hazards are, are psychological as much as they are physical. 
So, so the pressure of trying to of conquering your fear and your anxiety, that's a psychological uh, issue rather than a physical issue. Um, getting on with other people when you're cooped up for months perhaps on end with the same group of people, that's a psychological uh, game rather than a physical game. So we, we really wanted to focus on, on the kinds of hardships that maybe people hadn't thought of when they think of uh, extreme environments. You talk a lot about sensation seeking in the book and you mention a very interesting guy that I hadn't come across. Um, his name is Lionel Buster Crap. And mm. you say that he was a quintessential sensation seeker and he was, you, you mentioned some amazing polar explorers like Shackleton. You've lots of very mm. interesting action and adventure people. But you say that, you know, all of this sensation seeking spills into not just the extreme environments, but it also is that these people have appetites for high risk environments or high stake environments. And that can bring them into stuff in relation to sex and drugs also. Mm. Yeah, so so there's a kind of there's a kind of common perception that people who who uh, seek out extreme environments must be sensation seekers, and and that is true for for a minority. And we might come back to this later, but actually the vast majority aren't really about sensation seeking. But for those that are, there's quite a lot of research on the psychology of sensation seeking, and that research tends to suggest that sensation seeking is a kind of overall trait. So it's not about one specific environment, it's about a whole range of situations in which people might find themselves. So there are different types of sensation seeking, but they tend to be a kind of search for novel and intense experiences. And those intense experiences 